Welcome to the Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more information on events, news, and research, visit www.mrcbg.org. Today we are co-hosting the seminar with our colleagues from the Energy Policy Seminar and the Geopolitics of Energy Program. And thrilled to have with us today Jason Bordoff. Jason has extensive experience in government, having worked in the Treasury Department, worn a number of hats in the White House, including at the National Security Council, the National Energy, excuse me, the National Economic Council, and the Council on Environmental Quality. After leaving the Obama administration, he then went off to create the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia, serving as the founding director there and as a professor of the practice at Columbia. Today, he's going to give us a talk uh, about natural gas and sort of the geopolitics of energy. He's going to give about a half hour presentation, and then we'll open it up for comments. And we'll have sort of a mix of comments given the mix of draws here, some on how we think about regulatory policy impacting natural gas globally as well as how we think about other factors, uh, geopolitical factors that are influencing energy markets. Uh, so with that, Jason, welcome to the Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, <laughs> uh, is, is it necessary to use this to like stand in one place? Is that helpful? All right, I'll stand. Um, <clears throat> so thanks, Joe. Uh, this is uh, great to be here. Um, I, I emailed Joe to get together for dinner when I was invited to speak at Harvard Law School last night, and he said, why don't you come talk to lots of other people too, and I didn't realize it would be quite as uh, august a group of people as this. I love being at Columbia University. This makes me feel uh, many, many friends in this room and former colleagues from the administration and an enormous amount of intimidating expertise on uh, energy and environmental issues in this room. So I will uh, hopefully get kick the conversation off with a few observations and some of the stuff we've been working on at Columbia, but, but really hope this can be a conversation, which is what we talked about uh, initially, uh, and not limited to this topic, because I think the frame for the conversation was the geopolitics of energy. That's something we spend a lot of time at the Center on Global Energy Policy looking at are the intersections of energy <clears throat> and environment and national security and foreign policy. And that obviously goes way beyond, uh, way beyond global gas markets to what's happening in the oil markets and uh, what we see happening now with the Iran deal, with Venezuela's debt crisis, with Saudi-Russia cooperation on oil policy that I think is motivated by things other than oil policy and, and a host of other geopolitical issues, along with the geopolitical issues and challenges uh, and opportunities raised by a potential transition toward clean energy, which was... Uh, something we wrote a paper recently about with, uh, with Megan, uh, Columbia and Harvard collaboration, and, and I think there's just The Economist, I guess, a few weeks ago had an uh, insert on this, and there's a lot of interesting questions to talk about there. So hopefully we'll have a broader <coughs> conversation. Um, for those of you who don't know it, the Center on Global Energy Policy uh, is a research uh, policy institute housed within the Public Policy School, the School of International Public Affairs at Columbia, uh, with the explicit mission of trying to support uh, academic research, but then collaborate to bring the insights from that academic research to bear on informing and collaborating with people outside of academia to produce uh, papers and convenings and public and private dialogues uh, with 
leaders in the public and private sector to help inform the thinking and the decisions that they are making rooted in insights that we uh, work with the tenured faculty and others, including many practitioners we brought into the Energy Center uh, to produce, and, and looking at a, a range of issues <clears throat> from environment and climate to national security to the economy and how energy intersects with all of those things, which is what makes it such a fascinating uh, field to work in, I think. One of the uh, research areas that we focus on is um, sizable, maybe our biggest research area program is on the global gas market. We built a team of research scholars, uh, both faculty, tenured faculty members and also several practitioners we've brought in to study changes in the global gas market. And so I'm just going to present a little bit of the work that, they, that, that has emerged from that. Something of interest to me because when I was, for a lot of reasons, including how Important, I think it is, how fundamentally transformative it is. Uh, it also falls off the radar screen a lot. There's a lot of talk about what's happening with oil prices and OPEC policy, a lot of talk as there should be about what's happening, which is extraordinary with renewable energy, uh, clean energy costs, the transitions in our electricity system, uh, and with climate change. But I, I think people decades from now who write about this moment in time in energy history will look at what's happening in the global gas market today and, and really write about what we're seeing as a historic transformation with everything about the way the global gas market works. And that has environmental consequences, economic consequences, and national security consequences. This is something I thought about with a policy hat on when I was in the White House, and we were uh, making, uh, the Obama administration was asked to make decisions about whether it would approve the export of US natural gas. Uh, and that raised lots of questions about what the implications of that would be. So it's interesting to me to look now at how the market looks roughly five, six years uh, after those conversations happened in government and see what, what we were right about, what we were wrong about, and what impact U.S. gas exports, among lots of other shifts and transitions, are having on the global gas market. So what I thought I would talk about uh, is sort of in three broad categories. One is just a little bit of history about the global gas market, what it looked like, and how it has changed over the last um, several decades, but especially just less, the last few years, the la less than a decade, the different waves of evolution I've seen, uh, <clears throat> a little bit of our thinking on what supply and demand for gas looks like uh, around the world, and then most importantly, the unknown variables which I think could move this radically in different directions, which are very hard to anticipate, uh, but just touch on those sort of briefly um, at the end. The bulk of this will be kind of on what we see happening in the global gas market. And I'm going to keep this pretty brief because I do want to leave time for conversation, and I don't want the whole conversation to be about gas, I mean, as we talked about initially. Um, <clears throat> what you, there's a lot of talk about U.S. natural gas exports. This kind of, the U.S. just became a net exporter of natural gas uh, a couple months ago. Uh, we now uh, have seen one project, Shanir uh, Sabine Pass project ramp up and, and a second code point just started operation. So often talked about as a new thing. Um, it's mostly new, although we've been doing LNG exports from Alaska, but the first LNG export ever actually went from Louisiana to the United Kingdom on a modified tanker ship, um, uh, freight ship, uh, which is this thing called the Methane Pioneer in 1958. This was the first time LNG natural gas was moved by ship. After that, we saw through the 70s, 80s, and 90s, the emergence of a global LNG market with countries like Qatar, Algeria, Nigeria, um, the UAE in the 90s stepping into this space. Uh, but it was a pretty illiquid market, pretty small 
uh, market, relatively few sellers, relatively few buyers. The contracts were um, inflexible, linked to the price of oil, long-term contracts. So uh, buyers and sellers were not quite as inflexibly linked as they are by a pipeline, uh, but still not a lot of flexibility and liquidity in the market. Uh, and of course, I mean, I think everyone recognizes this, but the starting point of the way the global oil market works today, you can stick oil in a barrel here, it'll stay there, it's easy to transport, move around at room temperature, stick it on a ship and move it here or there. In response to price signals, it can change where it's going pretty easily and the cost of transport is quite low. Natural gas historically has not worked that way. Natural gas is more costly and, and, and difficult. Uh, more difficult, less flexible in how it can be moved around. So historically it's been pipeline <coughs> transport from point A to point B that raises uh, uh, connections and vulnerabilities between buyer and seller in a way that's unique for natural gas relative to the oil market. Uh, my friend Mendes here from Turkey who knows well as a crossroads for those pipeline routes how uh, geopolitically sensitive those pipeline connections can be. As it starts to take to the water that changes. There's more flexibility in how we think about where gas can go. But that wasn't true for a long time. Mostly it was a few NOCs who were playing in this space, a relatively small group of credit-worthy buyers and a small group of very large sellers. Uh, and waves of cyclicality in the industry. Huge investments in a new emerging area like Algeria. That supply comes to the market and then everyone's like, what are we going to do with all this LNG? And then uh, investment collapses for a while and then another cycle comes in. So historically we saw that um, regional uh, prices of natural gas in different regions were relatively disconnected, um, but, but, but there wasn't that much liquidity in the global gas market. The, this sort of starts in 2010. I guess the first wave, as I think about it, of evolution in the gas market came before this, which is on the chart which was sort of the Atlantic Basin Renaissance, we started to see more gas-on-gas -gas competition uh, as the gas uh, moved to the water in, in the Atlantic Basin. This is maybe the second wave when we saw the shale revolution come into the market. We saw, uh, so shale gave this enormous supply of very cheap and expensive natural gas to the United States in the two to three dollar per million BTU range. Compare that to 2008, I think, you know, natural gas averaged $8 per million BTU. It peaked at $13 per million BTU. So we have just had an extraordinary amount of very cheap natural gas in this country, and we're going to have it for a long time to come, I think is a pretty reasonable bet. Uh, and then a shock, in addition to that, came in with the Fukushima nuclear disaster, uh, <coughs> where they lost 54 nuclear plants. They quickly had to find supply for new natural gas, and that and markets work, right? You, you, the, the, you saw price signals try to draw that supply in by the price of gas in Asia shooting up to 16 18 $20 per million BTU. This is the point at which we started to have the conversation in government about whether we should export gas. And every week it seemed like an Asian leader would show up at the White House saying, when can we get your gas? And we have a special relationship with you to buy your gas. Um, and Prime Minister Abe would have, you know, half hour with the president, this was on the list. I mean, it reached that level of importance for uh, buyers in Asia. Uh, partly because they had this spike in demand and then also because oil prices were very high and the contracts were linked to the price of oil. We've seen prices in Asia and Europe uh, uh, fall sharply recently um, <clears throat> for a variety of reasons, including the oil price collapse. But part of it is we're seeing a lot of growth in the amount of water, the uh, amount of gas that is taken to the water, and more competition that they have, and more flexibility that they have 
in the market. And so that's what you see uh, recently. And uh, so this is all derivative of the fact that, as everyone knows, we had a shale gas revolution in the US. We all know that. But I think just even looking at the pictures of it reminds you how staggering it is. Like, Charts like this don't happen very often in the history of global energy, uh, where transitions tend to take decades. Uh, the slope of, you know, if you look at the slope of the increase in U.S. oil production, the decline in U.S. coal production, the increase in U.S. gas production, like lines with those slopes just don't happen very often in the history of energy. These have been really uh, seismic shifts, I think, in what the outlook has been. And this has completely changed what everybody thought was true a decade ago for the U.S. Uh, net import dependence picture. You see on the left here uh, a chart from the U.S. Energy Information Administration showing uh, what they thought U.S. import dependence for natural gas would look like. And you can see a decade ago we thought we would have ever-increasing dependence on costly liquefied natural gas. And the most recent projections from the U.S. Energy Department, as I said, we just became a net exporter, and this is a mirror image of itself. It just flipped almost overnight in the scale of the global energy system, this is overnight, uh, to uh, rapidly becoming one of the largest exporters of natural gas uh, in the world. You can see the, these are projects that are happening that have taken FID, and maybe more projects in the future, but at a minimum, uh, within the next couple of years, we'll have the capacity to export somewhere around 9 billion cubic feet a day of natural gas. Qatar, the world's largest exporter of natural gas, exports around 11 billion cubic feet a day. So we, along with Australia and Qatar, and increasingly Russia, are becoming uh, one of the world's largest exporters of natural gas. This is important not only because it needs more supply, but I think because of what is different about U.S. natural gas. Part of that is what you see on the right, which is how much of this uh, how much this is adding to the market, uh, export volumes with uh, fully flexible uh, destination and where the gas goes, creating more liquid and competitive global gas markets. So you can see within a couple of years, about half, uh, about half of the contract volumes with flexible destination will come from North America and that is about half of total gas contracts. So about half of the total gas contracts have flexible destinations, and about half of that will be from North America versus a very small amount today. So we're putting a lot more gas in the market that's fully destination flexible. You're already seeing that with where U.S. gas is going. This shows you in the last year where U.S. LNG exports from the Gulf Coast have gone. Um, most gas traded in the world doesn't look like this, and it's actually, in my view, quite significant that it looks like this. Uh, if I show you 2016, right, because Chenier started early 16, I think. Um, <coughs> uh, I have that right. Uh, the, the first sort of six to nine months of U.S. LNG exports, and again, remember, I, when we were going through this, I, we thought all the gas would go to Asia, and then I showed you how the prices change in Asia. So about two-thirds of the gas exports uh, for the first nine months or so went to South America. In the last six months, we've seen a sharp ramp up where the cargoes are now going to Asia, uh, in part because we saw, uh, largely driven by China, uh, and what we saw in China is many people you know, read in the papers with these gas shortages. They took more aggressive policy measures to address local air pollution by phasing out coal-fired boilers. 
uh, didn't quite plan properly for whether their gas system could meet that increase in demand uh, and, and saw some shortages and some pipeline problems and, and they, they, had, they needed higher prices to pull LNG supply into China. So China's LNG demand grew 50% last year. That's a huge increase, a huge slug of additional demand to the global uh, gas market. Um, so I think what's important about this is how varied these lines are and how they change in response to price signals, which is how a market is supposed to work, but it's not how the gas market has worked in the past. Uh, U.S. is not the only factor, but I think it is the dominant factor that's driving that evolution, where the price of gas around the world is increasingly being set by supply and demand for that commodity versus being linked to another commodity, and where in response to changes in the supply-demand balance for gas, markets can respond more quickly and more efficiently. Um, this, by the way, uh, some people here were involved in that. They can tell me if they remember the conversations the same way. I think was one of the primary drivers in, 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 in the eventual decision by the administration to approve gas exports. This was a very controversial issue. People who followed it at the time will remember that the administration uh, at a pretty bureaucratic level approved a permit that came in the door for gas exports. No one really thought too much about it. Um, and then it became a pretty contentious political issue where <coughs> CEOs like Andy Liberis at Dow Chemical complained loudly about what exports would do to push up the price of natural gas and kill the U.S. manufacturing renaissance. Environmental groups, many were opposed to it because it would lead to more fracking. That's where the gas would come from. Uh, and, and, and it became a pretty sensitive political issue with several members of the U.S. Senate, like Ron Wyden, and others, so it required a lot of analysis to kind of be like, are, are we sure this is the right thing to do? Part of that was a general belief that we should have free trade and energy along with other goods and a commitment to open markets. Um, <clears throat> but part of, it was, uh, part of it was a belief that there's a pretty flat supply curve for gas and you could actually export U.S. gas without driving up the price. And it's been true so far, so I think we got that part right. Uh, but another part was what this could do to help facilitate a transformation of the global <coughs> gas market, create more liquidity, competition, flexibility, and what that would do to enhance energy security, security of supply for key regions of the world like Eastern Europe, uh, uh, allies in Asia like Japan, and reduce the leverage that some gas exporters, Russia is obviously the first one that comes to mind, have in how they have used their dominant gas supply position in the past. And I think we're actually seeing that play out. Um, you can see that play out in how much of the gas is now flexible. So this shows you that it was, you know, wasn't that long ago that most gas was traded by pipeline, not by uh, water. And within a couple of years, half the gas trade in the world will be flexible gas on the water. And, and thereafter, a majority of gas traded around the world will be flexible uh, gas. We are seeing as a result of that changes in how gas is priced around the world. Historically, it has been linked to the price of oil, which you know, we'd always have, um, there was a very strong move around 2013 or 14 to index the price of gas traded to Henry Hub uh, uh, with contracts that were being signed with Schneer and others. That's sort of a third wave after the second wave I showed you before. That, and everybody said, we, we want, you know, uh, we want Henry Hub index gas. We don't want oil indexation. The Asians wanted their own spot market. Um, what I was said to them was, you don't, you don't not like oil index prices, you don't like high prices, and those were the same thing at the time. Uh, so as soon as the oil price collapsed in late 2014, the excitement about indexing to Henry Hub waned a bit, um, and we saw more uh, of the oil index contracts. But there still is resistance to that, and there still are now lots of creative hybrid models being kind of developed where the slope 
to oil changes. They, it's partly indexed to TTF or to Henry Hub. TTF is one of the Asian uh, European benchmarks. So we're undergoing this kind of like interesting period now where no one really knows how gas is going to be priced moving forward exactly and where, what, what this, how, how people will determine the contracts, either short-term contracts, long-term contracts, or even spot sales. Uh, and the answers to that is going to be, uh, sorry, let's see these slides, sorry, is going to be pretty important, um, I think, for, for the role gas plays around the world and how it competes with, uh, with other fuels. Um, one of the interesting things we've seen is where all this demand for gas is coming from, uh, which in the past was some of these large buyers like China. We've seen the emergence of lots of small emerging countries, uh, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Indonesia. This is where the demand growth has come from. These are less credit-worthy buyers, which has consequences for their ability to sign long-term contracts and engage in this market. That the con a consequence of that has been a, a significant increase in the role of portfolio players like Total and Shell and people like that into this market because they have the capital to manage that sort of risk. They have the risk management tools to deal with it. So you are seeing them step in not only to be producers of gas that they sell to the global market, but now portfolio buyers uh, and trading firms. So the Glencores and all the trading houses are playing a much bigger role in this space because they have existing long-term relationships in some of these small markets and the ability to manage risk in a way that traditional suppliers uh, didn't always have. Uh, you, you can see the average length of the contracts being signed has just collapsed. No, one's, no one wants to sign long-term contracts anymore because the price has collapsed. There's more uncertainty about the demand outlook for gas. Uh, we can talk a little bit about how gas is competing and the, you know, even just the idea that gas uh, increase in renewables is supportive of gas demand because you need gas to balance renewables. That even assumption is coming uh, under, under under more question now as the economics of renewables and battery storage and demand side management and energy efficiency start to look <laughs> better and better. You have countries around the world liberalizing their gas markets and creating more competition, which makes it harder for some of the buyers uh, to, to sign long-term <coughs> deals. Um, so, so fewer long-term commitments, more of a dependence on the spot market, and this means nobody knows how to build these projects and finance them anymore. So everyone's really bullish, and maybe they're wrong, but the consensus view is to be pretty bullish now on the LNG demand outlook. I think that's right. But we've seen a collapse in FID, final investment decision, for contracts. So there's this like tension now where no one's, uh, no one's signing deals uh, to, 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 to build new projects having trouble raising the capital to do it, even though people think we're going to need more LNG supply in the market uh, to come in the future. And so you see people now trying to come up with these creative business models. Sharif Suki, who created Chenier uh, with long-term contracts, uh, uh, left that firm uh, and, and is now doing a new LNG venture. Um, selling equity in the project to potential buyers who then will have access to a certain volume of gas at cost. It's just kind of like a new innovative way to maybe finance a multi-billion dollar project no one's done before because it's become harder and harder for people to raise billions of dollars in capital without long-term contracts. Um, this question of where the new supply is going to come from I think is especially important in a market that uh, looks a lot tighter than people thought it would be. So you can see a few quotes here from 2015, 16, 17, and what the consensus view was 
from all sorts of experts that the market was going to be glutted with natural gas. We have more LNG coming to the market than we know what to do with. Um, price is going to collapse. No one, no one's going to want all this gas. Um, that hasn't happened, and we put out a study recently trying to analyze why the gas market. There isn't an oversupply in the gas market today. Part of that is well known. You, we expected China would grow, although maybe not quite as rapidly as it has, and especially in the last year. I explained why a minute ago and what the policy drivers for that were. What I didn't fully appreciate until we ran the numbers was the role of these emerging importers. Um, and again, um, Egypt, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Indonesia, moving forward potentially people, places like uh, Myanmar, Philippines, uh, Vietnam, Sri Lanka, they're all small, but like they add up. And if you add them up, which is what we did in this study, you find that we contributed nearly 60% of the net growth in LNG demand from 2014 to 2017. It was a bigger demand shock to the global market than the increase in demand in Japan was after Fukushima. And this was facilitated by uh, FSRUs, floating storage and regasification units, which is um, technology that is just significantly lowers the cost of building the capacity in your country to import natural gas. So as FSRU technology has uh, emerged and been more widely deployed, it's become economic for many smaller players that couldn't build multi-billion dollar import terminals to play in the natural gas market. What's interesting about this chart is not only how big it is when you add it up, but also that it flatlined in the last year. And the question, one of the things we're working, we're studying, <laughs> is, is trying to sort of think about whether this, this will continue and if so, where it might continue from. So that brings us to sort of what the outlook is for demand and supply. As I said, I think the demand outlook is, um, is, is, is strong, and, and I think uh, the big driver of that will be China, driven by concerns about air quality in its major metropolitan areas. We saw that in the last year with the move to move away from coal-fired boilers. I think this is largely a policy-driven shift. There are significant challenges that they'll have to overcome in order to do this with um, infrastructure, with uh, storage capacity, pipeline capacity, regasification capacity. They have to build a lot of new infrastructure, but they have plans to do that, including five new import terminals coming online uh, this year. They'll meet some of that gas demand with increased domestic production. They're going to meet some with pipelines to China, but I think that th that's not going to be enough if you look at what the numbers are likely to be for that. Um, India, I think, is maybe the biggest uncertainty in my view. I mean, really big question about what the outlook for de gas demand will be in India. I think among India's leadership, there's very, very strong focus on growing renewables now, and they have, and they have very ambitious targets under Modi to grow renewables. That seemed, uh, seemed quite unrealistic when they, when they announced them, and still hard to achieve, but much more <coughs> possible than it seemed to me when they announced them. Uh, and also they are using a lot of coal and plan to continue using a lot of coal. But they have a target to grow <clears throat> gas in the energy mix from 65 to 15% by 2022. That requires a huge amount of new investment in import facilities. Um, that would, that's at 70 million tons per annum of natural gas. That would make them one of the largest LNG importers in the world if they were able to get there. They also have significant issues with how gas price regulation, gas con uh, price controls that they have in, in, in urban areas that don't create the right incentives for people to import gas or to produce gas, 
could sort of think about, Paul Josko is here, he knows maybe better than anyone in this room what gas price regulation looked like in the 1970s here in the US and some of the incentive problems created by fixing prices for new gas and old gas and old, old gas. And I think India has some of those same problems. So there's a lot of question about whether they'll get there, but the potential could be a huge addition to demand. As I said, we're looking at the question of whether new uh, small emerging importers will come to market. Uh, and I do think the economics, uh, when you model the cost effectiveness of gas in the grid in these countries, especially if they start to also take stronger policy measures to address air pollution, which is a significant concern, makes gas with FSRU technology look pretty attractive, in, particularly in some of those South uh, Asian, Southeast Asian countries I mentioned ago, a minute ago. Uh, credit quality is a challenge for these countries in a way that hadn't been true for some of the past buyers. And so if you talk to people today in the US State Department, obviously this is an administration that is very vocal in its support of US energy exports. Uh, Secretary Perry in Davos said, we're not exporting gas, we're exporting freedom. Uh, so they, 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 they uh, are very bullish on, on exporting gas. The question is, what can you actually do to move the needle? These projects I pointed to a minute ago were all approved before by the last administration. Uh, and then there's not yet people asking for approval, maybe one, to build new terminals. Uh, one of the things that they are doing, and that actually I think could be valuable, is to engage with multilateral development institutions to help provide credit financing for people who want to build import capacity. Um, Japan is a question mark on the demand side in terms of how quickly they bring the nuclear fleet back. Uh, their plans are to, I mean, they, they had 54, there's only 42 that are still operational, and I think five are technically up and running, but only three of those are actually running because there's maintenance issues with the other ones. So they've had a lot of trouble bringing their nuclear fleet back. Their plan is to grow it to 20 to 22% of the electricity mix by 2030. Uh, that would be about 25 to 30 reactors. Again, they have somewhere between three and six running today. Um, so I don't think they're going to achieve their goal. If they did achieve their goal, that's the orange line in terms of what it would mean for LNG imports. But I think something like the yellow line, if you're skeptical about how quickly they bring the nuclear back, suggests demand will still be strong there. The Middle East is important not only on the supply side, but also on the demand side. Uh, and they are trying to uh, push, uh, reduce their use of oil, particularly in a place like Saudi Arabia, which uses a lot of oil to create electricity in the summertime, uh, trying to find alternatives to that because it's economically wasteful. Uh, the, I, the Saudis just signed a huge deal for solar with SoftBank a few days ago when, when, when the Crown Prince was in, in, in the US. Uh, they've also talked uh, quite seriously about whether they're going to import LNG, which is kind of amazing to think about them importing LNG. Uh, they have neighbors next door who mm -hmm. they could buy it cheaply from, like Qatar and Iran. They will not do that for the title of this talk, The Geopolitics of Energy. Uh, so they, uh, they have much closer cooperation now with Russia on oil policy. I think this is, as I said a minute ago, driven by things that are geopolitical in nature, not just about oil policy. And the uh, oil minister, Khalid al-Fala, went to Yamal uh, LNG, the Russian facility, to indicate potential interest in uh, actually buying Russian uh, LNG. Um, but, but again, th th there's questions about that. I think um, as the oil price colla has collapsed, we've seen a slowdown in GDP growth, which has reduced energy demand in the region. They've used that as an opportunity to reform fuel subsidies. The Saudis actually have raised energy prices, so that could reduce demand. Uh, and then they also are growing renewables. And they've talked about nuclear, which was part of the meetings they had here. 
Um, we've done a lot of work at the center studying what the new international maritime organization rules will mean in 2020. So for those of you who don't know, the IMO has rules coming in 2020 to set limits on sulfur emissions from the maritime sector. That's going to mean that you, unless you install scrubber technology on your ships, you can't use high sulfur fuel oil. And so the question is how the shipping industry responds to that. Putting scrubbers in place, <coughs> uh, using low sulfur uh, fuel oil, or using gas in shipping. And there have been several uh, companies that have announced plans to build LNG-fueled tankers. There's a lot of challenges with that, too, including the infrastructure you need to move a ship all over the world and refuel it. Uh, carbon policy plays into this, because depending on what your expectations are about how stringent carbon policy will be, that's either supportive, bullish, or bearish for whether you think it makes sense to invest in gas in the shipping sector. But, uh, but we do expect this to provide uh, a meaningful uh, slug of demand we have like 20 to 30 million tons per year by 2030. In terms of where the gas is going to come from, uh, the U.S. is unbelievable. Like the amount of cheap gas we have in Pennsylvania, I showed you a minute ago, and the amount of basically free gas that we're going to have coming out of the Permian Basin is huge. I see Bob Kleinberg from Schlumberger nodding his head, so maybe it seems like they have to agree with that. The outlook for U.S. shale oil production uh, at these oil prices uh, is much higher than people thought it would be, certainly than I think the Saudis thought it would be when they let the oil price collapse. Um, and when you produce oil, you get a lot of associated gas with it. You have to find something to do with that gas, especially in a state like Texas that has pretty strict flaring rules. Uh, and and, and, and I, if you, for me, I, I don't know if Bob agrees with this, I've asked many uh, CEOs in the Texas oil patch, you know, what are you most worried about that could stymie the growth in U.S. oil production? And gas takeaway capacity is pretty high on that list. So they feel like they need to find additional outlets for associated gas in the U.S. If you look, we just sort of pulled the numbers uh, for this. If you look at the projected growth in um, gas production uh, <coughs> uh, in the U.S., as a result of the oil boom along with other gas and say, where could that go? Uh, you could send more to Mexico, you could back out some gas imports uh, as we have already from Canada. We have a lot of LNG coming online. We're gonna have increased domestic demand to some extent. That's not enough. And uh, so I think we will continue to need more investment in LNG export projects uh, from the US. Uh, Qatar has announced it's lifting its moratorium from 77 million tons per year to 100 million tons per year. It was unclear exactly how they would do that before, but they've now announced the three-train expansion program that I think is going to trying to draw the majors in, like Total and Shell, and see if those people will come in to build new export capacity. And so I don't think there's much reason why they can't get there unless this GCC conflict were to escalate somehow. But so far, it has kind of reached a stalemate and hasn't affected Qatar's gas supply. Uh, Russia's actually emerging as a larger player in the global gas market. They have more investment in LNG. Uh, that they've planned, including Yamal, which just started up and got a lot of attention because you folks here in Boston bought some of that gas and people found that potentially problematic. Um, but but they, uh, there's a lot of political support for more, uh, for more gas production in Russia. So I think they'll emerge. I mean, people always talk about the U.S., Australia, Qatar. You're going to hear Russia talked about more as a supplier of LNG to the world, which will be interesting given how they talk about it as a pipeline supplier to the world what security concerns that raises. Huge potential for gas production in the Eastern Mediterranean, 
which has largely been stymied so far by geopolitical tensions among the people that need to cooperate in order to build the infrastructure to bring this gas to market, uh, and also by domestic political, in my view, foolishness, like Israel can't get out of its own way to produce its gas. Uh, it keeps kind of shooting itself in the foot with domestic requirements on how much has been used in the country versus exported. But I think in the last, like, 12 months or so, we've actually, or even 18 months, we've seen a, a lot of progress. Uh, regulatory reforms <coughs> are quite sensible. We've seen some deals signed uh, between countries that are geopolitically hostile to one another to cooperate on bringing some of this supply to market. So I think the outlook for Eastern Mediterranean gas production is a little bit brighter today, uh, and, and I think we will see, we are gonna see uh, growth in, in Eastern Mediterranean production. And so like, you know, what is what is what could what could move this meaningfully in different directions? Um, uh, I'll just mention a couple of factors, and I just want to have a conversation. I didn't bring like data on on any of these, but um, <clears throat> questions about uh, what your what 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 policies are put in place are going to be really important, and whether those policies are primarily about carbon or whether they are primarily about local pollution has different impacts on natural gas. Uh, whether the climate policies are about carbon or whether they are about certain forms of carbon abatement, like renewable energy, will matter for the outlook for gas. So we have seen in parts of Europe gas demand get squeezed because we've had very, you know, for lack of a better term, picking winners. We've seen very strong support and subsidies and mandates for renewables. We've seen a growth in renewables, say, in Germany. Haven't really seen coal decline, but you've seen gas and nuclear decline uh, because of the way climate policy is being designed. It is not purely a price that lets the market figure out the cheapest way to reduce emissions. Um, the gas industry is aware of this, though not as much as they should be, but the reputation of gas is significantly at risk, uh, in my view, uh, as a, I don't know what the word is, clean fuel or low carbon, as having some role to play. What's the role for gas? in a decarbonization transition, and people talk about a bridge, and we can talk about whether that makes any sense. Uh, the problem of methane emissions, I think rightly, has gotten a lot of attention. It is a real issue. It is uh, one that we've already seen many, many steps taken to address and mitigate, but much more needs to be done. I think some parts of the industry get this more than others and are taking uh, really valuable steps to try to make sure that they are reducing methane emissions. The thing I mentioned about Russia a minute ago, I think, is going to continue to be an issue. I chaired a moderated a session about energy security at the Munich Security Conference, which was all about natural gas, and we spent two hours talking about, like, is Russia gas good, safe for Europe or not? And at the end, I just said, are, is everyone in this room, and it was more kind of oil and gas people, or is anyone worried that, you know, the environmental movement is turning against gas, and just by sitting here for two hours talking about whether this is risky or not, like, you're further stigmatizing gas as not only a not clean fuel, but now an energy security risky fuel. And that is certainly, the, I think, a prevailing view in Europe. A question about whether it will go elsewhere. Other issues in Europe and elsewhere about seismicity, that's been an issue in, in the US, but also now in the Netherlands and other places. Uh, there are also policy issues that could be bullish uh, for demand, and I think ex increased measures to expand energy access around the world are going to uh, see, can, can help give gas demand uh, a boost. Geopolitics is hugely important to the global gas market. Megan can talk about energy geopolitics better <laughs> than I can, but the t tensions now we see between uh, Europe and uh, 
And Russia, Russia, for all the talk of getting off of Russian gas, European Russian sales to the Europe went up last year. Russia's share of the European market went up last year. So Europe is not taking those steps right now. They are taking what I think are quite sensible steps <coughs> with the engagement of the Obama State Department and the State Department to benefit from the first part of this talk, which is to say, okay, it makes no sense to get off of Russian gas because Russia is the cheapest gas we can get. It's a third of our gas supply. We can't get it from anywhere else. But what we want to do is reduce our vulnerability to any potential disruption in supply. So we are going to build interconnectors, build reverse flow capabilities, build some FSRUs. So if there were to be a gas disruption, we have optionality and compelling supplies in response to the right price signals from the global market. And the development of the more integrated liquid market I talked about in the beginning, I think is a huge energy security benefit by making it easier for them to do that. I mentioned some of the tensions in the Middle East, which I think are, in my view, worrisome. We saw missiles shot down again over Riyadh a few days ago, uh, and I sent a tweet out that said, you know, if anyone wants to think about an escalating geopolitical risk scenario in, 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 in the Middle East, think just one of those Houthi missiles has to not get shot down and fall on a populated building in Riyadh, and think about how the Crown Prince might respond to that vis-a-vis uh, -vis Iran. That worries me. Maybe you have thoughts about that. Um, and then U.S. foreign policy um, is, I think, a very different. There's always been geopolitical risk in the energy markets. I think what's new in all the conversations I have at places like the Munich Security Conference is how much people perceive that geopolitical risk to now emanate from Washington, D.C. Uh, so the sense of uncertainty about U.S. foreign policy, how it would approach conflict in the Middle East or how it would uh, approach things like North Korea conflict and other things. Obviously, its approach toward trade policy uh, and sanctions are a big issue. So Total, for example, has just made a huge investment in Iran and now is faced with the prospects of the Iran sanctions coming back into effect May 12th. Um, all of those things are uncertainties for the gas market. Uh, and, then, and then huge technology uncertainties. I mentioned a minute ago, I was talking with Jesse Jenkins earlier about some of this, which he studies, but many people in this room know uh, better than I sort of where the costs are going for renewables and batteries. I think it was notable, definitely got the, I'll put it this way, got the gas industry's attention that after the Alyssa Canyon methane leak in California, uh, not only was that a terrible environmental disaster, but it caused the state of California to say, all right, now we have to meet seasonal demand, and how do we, they quickly put out bids to ask people uh, how, how are we going to invest in, uh, how are we going to meet seasonal demand and increase our capacity, um, and, and what won was renewables with grid-scale storage uh, looked more favorable than the economics of natural gas. So the, uh, the question of whether you're going to start to see more competition as these costs come down that could squeeze gas demand is an important one. We saw a real, we were talking at dinner last night about this uh, new, quite generous tax credit for carbon capture storage technology that was put into the budget recently, which I think will meaningfully change the investment outlook for CCS. And so if that technology were to emerge more quickly, then we think that would be supportive of uh, gas demand. Um, and just other disruptive kind of things we can't anticipate. Um, I know someone who is starting a company to move natural gas by airship. So think of something, <laughs> think of something like twice the size of the Hindenburg, and strapped under it is like big compressed natural gas tanks. And the idea is, you know, in a place like an offshore, a stranded gas offshore that's been flared, can you sort of do a milk run every week and like pick up 
the gas, the way you do with liquids, and deliver it to remote island nations or to inland areas in emerging markets that don't have infrastructure. I have no idea if that's going to make sense or not. It seems crazy, but who knows? <laughs> uh, uh, and and there's like a long list of these sorts of things. Not to mention, Jessica was talking earlier too about the way new data science tools and <coughs> machine learning and other things will affect not just natural gas, but the energy sector broadly to significantly increase energy efficiency and reduce energy demand, or to increase um, renewable capacity and efficiencies in production, or to increase oil and gas production. I know Bob Kleinberg has thoughts about this, but there's a lot of discussion at places like Zero Week this year about how sensors on offshore oil wells can capture data that significantly increases and lowers the cost of producing hydrocarbons. So um, these are some of the things that we're uh, working on. We actually have a great data sciences institute at Columbia and built, we're jointly hired uh, a few people now to work on how data science might affect the energy sector to this fascinating. Uh, and just a reminder that we should not, we don't know what these disruptive technologies will be. Uh, this is my favorite cartoon, which I have in my office, which shows whales. This is Vanity Fair in 1861, and it shows whales at a, at a party celebrating the discovery of Colonel Edwin Drake's oil well in 1859, because the whale population was being decimated uh, to pull out whale oil for illumination, and then a new innovation came along, rock oil, that could create kerosene and, and, and produce lighting in a more economic way, and that had a big benefit for the whale population. What's interesting about economics and sort of dynamic interconnected markets is that the whale population kept declining because people had other uses for whales, like cat food. Uh, it wasn't that the whale population was saved. But it did stop the use of it for this purpose. So we don't know what this disruptive equivalent will be that will cause the whales to celebrate. But I think the history of the energy sector teaches us that something is coming. Um, so thanks for your uh, attention, and we look forward to the conversation. Thank you. start off by asking our co-hosts, Bill Hogan and Megan O'Sullivan, if they have any questions or comments for Jason uh, before we open it up. I don't think I want to take questions from Megan. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds difficult. Um, okay, I'll start, Jason. And thanks for a great and, and sweeping presentation and highlighting so many of the interesting elements of this topic that uh, we'll be examining in, in the months and years to come. I wanted to ask you about um, U.S natural gas exports, and specifically in relationship to China. And going back to your chart there, it was noticeable that while the gas has been spread out globally, as you pointed out, um, I think it was like the second largest uh, number of shipments have, have gone to China. And I wanted uh, you to give us a sense of uh, just the political sensitivity there on both sides, and if you see that volume ever getting to a point where it has any political yeah. significance or not. I think it was, um, it was a concern, a political concern, when, I don't know if Jason remembers it the same way, when we were going through this process in the administration, um, it might not, if, you're, if you think the right answer in a politically contentious environment is to find a way to approve gas exports, which was ultimately what the administration decided, um, highlighting that lots of this might go to China might not be helpful. Um, no one's really noticed this now. I think because gas is super cheap. And so I, I, I think the, one of the policy risks, which maybe I could have highlighted, is um, uh, 
that there is another, I mean, we saw this in a very different situation, not comparable, but in Australia recently, this huge backlash against LNG exports because you had gas prices spike within the country, even though those two things were not linked. Um, but I don't think they'll be linked here either. I think if you were to imagine a scenario where there's a backlash, a regulatory backlash against um, shale development, if there are um, pipeline outages, very cold weather, some confluence of factors that causes gas prices to spike, and then there are headlines that we just sent a bunch more gas to China, I think that will be a political problem. So if you, um, a, a lot of this uh, story, a lot of the discussion is also sort of the quantity-oriented uh, perspective. Uh, we know what we need. We need 42% from gas and 13% from renewables and updates <coughs> and all that kind of thing. Uh, there's a story just the other day about our home state here in Massachusetts where the, where the new initiative is the renewable portfolio standard is not working right uh, because it doesn't produce the power at the right time, so we're going to have a critical, we're going to have a peak hour renewable portfolio standard. And the logic of that is going to go down to every hour. <coughs> Prescribing, prescriptive, prescribing. The other way to think about the problem is you had called Joe Aldi and for his favorite social cost of carbon um, trajectory, and you put that in, and then you let the system sort itself out. And what is your sense about, you know, I mean, how different these worlds turn out to be? When does one break because of the unintended consequences? You know. Well, the social cost of carbon, I'm told by this administration, is a dollar, so I don't know if I have <laughs> That's why I asked Joe. <laughs> but I don't quote this administration. Uh, no, it's a good question. If you just let, do what many of us think is the right thing to do, which is price the externality and let markets figure this out, kind of what, what, what happens. Um, and, and, and we've seen some of that. We've seen uh, the UK set the stronger carbon price, and that's pushed out coal. It's brought more gas into the mix. If you look at so I th if you do that analysis today, uh, I think what you'll find is that's quite supportive for gas demand for a while, right? a couple of decades, depending on how high this carbon price goes and how significantly we reduce emissions. Um, so if you just had a global carbon tax, um, that would uh, that would uh, that would be, I think that would be even more bullish for gas demand. Oops for the next two to three decades than some of the projections you saw here. Uh, the big uncertainty about that, I think, is how the technology and the costs are going to change and whether we start to see some real uh, innovations and tipping points with the cost of whether it's advanced nuclear or you know uh, distributed renewables and utility-scale storage and just changing the input assumptions that you would have, I think, if you modeled that today with members from the EIA or something. Yeah. So the, um I agree with you that, that the next five to ten years looks pretty bullish for continued expansion of gas. Um, I think there's an interesting component of the environmental distinction between LNG and natural gas fuel pipeline that you didn't really mention. Um, you know, back in 2010, 11, 12, yeah. you and I talked a lot about uh, the environmental resistance to the shale gas boom in the U.S. And I think both of us felt that it was. Uh, uh, a mistake, and, and it, for environmental reasons, shale gas was ultimately a very good thing for, at least for the climate movement, certainly also for the air pollution effort. Um, and I think, I think, in hindsight, I hope most people would agree that we were on the right side of that. Um, Public LNG is a different thing, right? Because LNG emissions are substantially yeah. higher. 
because of the energy required. <coughs> and when you add the uh, potential for additional emissions from methane, which I tend to discount for other reasons, but right. but but you have to take them seriously a little bit. Um, LNG looks a lot closer to coal than it does to natural gas. Uh, you know, and depending on how leaky the pipeline is, but but you know, certainly it looks a lot. So so the question is, is that a big distinction going forward? Could you imagine, um, you know, you put a price on carbon, LNG suddenly it, it bifurcates. It's not only more expensive, but it's also much more carbon intensive. Um, and when you think about Europe, where LNG is the one thing that's keeping them from being more dependent on Russia, uh, this could be a problem. Yeah. No, I think it's a really good point. And so if you look at, you know, Chenier's contract structure, which was 115% of the price of Henry Hub plus a fixed liquefaction fee, it was 115% because of how much gas they would have to use to liquefy it, right? So it wasn't 100%. You take the gas, it was 115 because we have to take that, that share of the gas we're pulling in just to create the energy we need to liquefy it. Um, and then I think, I've, I've, I've told people in the LNG sector, you would be smart to get ahead of this problem and send some like drones over LNG tankers and study what the methane profile, the leakage profile of that looks like, because I don't, it might not be good. And, and we don't really know yet, right? In the same way that before the last, the effort that EDF and universities and industry and some of the people over the last five, six years undertook to understand the methane leakage problem in oil and gas in the US uh, and globally now. Um, we haven't really looked on the water yet. Uh, I think when people do, this is going to get more attention and it's going to lead to more backlash and be more of an issue moving forward. The flip side is, as I mentioned in the talk, I think the in many parts of the world where demand is strongest, the motivation is local pollution, yeah, not climate change. Yeah. And, and, and that will continue to drive demand. But I, I think this that will get more attention. There will, <clears throat> I have told people in the, in the industry that I think you should get ready for a world where gas and LNG are not seen equally in terms of cleanliness, and obviously there's disputes about gas pipeline on that too, but I think the numbers still show it's better than coal, but but it's not as good as pipeline gas. Yeah, yeah. I think it is, that's right. Uh, that sounds, I, I don't want to take a question from Paul, that sounds really scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Paul. Yeah, Paul. Uh, it's an easy question. Uh, <clears throat> Jason, could you just fill out the export-import situation and discuss pipeline exports to Mexico, which have Yeah, no, no, no. We're, I mean, look, we're still, this will change within several, four, three, four, five years. But we talk a lot about LNG exports today. Most of the gas we export is by pipeline to Mexico. Mexico has significantly invested in uh, their manufacturing sector, a lot of petrochemical investment. They've increased their power sector investments in gas. Independent, like dependence on, we have very cheap Henry Hub next door and we can import that. They're a little bit freaked out now about NAFTA renegotiations because we have a different trade regime for natural gas if you're a free trade agreement country versus a non-free trade agreement country. So we had a workshop at Columbia recently with a bunch of Mexican officials and they were like talking about the geopolitical risk of depending on the US for their natural gas. It was like the way Eastern Europeans talk about Russia. They were deeply concerned about this. I think it'll get resolved because it's not in the US interest to cut off gas supply to Mexico, but they're worried about it. 
Uh, and we have the potential, we have a paper coming out soon on this, to grow that capacity, as I showed here, with an extra additional slug. There's new pipeline that investment that's being made. Uh, I just don't think the demand in Mexico is going to be strong enough to grow it more than another, like, 2 PCF a day or something um, over the next several years. Um, pretty sure we're still a net importer from Canada, uh, and that can be displaced to some extent, so we can feed more gas in the U.S. system and displace gas imports from Canada. These are pretty small numbers, too. So if you believe, you know, some of those growth in associated gas in the Permian numbers, um, the amount of additional volume coming into the U.S., and the amount will be ex have the capacity to export, whether the market wants it or not is a different question, but the capacity to export 8, 9, 10 BCF a day of, of LNG. LNG will dominate pipelines within a few years. But the Mexico story is really important for some additional demand and also just geopolitics. Um, uh, you had your hand up before, yeah? Yeah, so I look at these issues, um, and there's some very interesting things that play in, uh, in this whole picture. Uh, for one thing, part, a large part of this talk is having markets and markets set. A lot of, uh, uh, of what's going to happen <coughs> in a year, 10 years, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but when I look at the various industries, I, I see that national policy and uh, completely open markets uh, don't necessarily match up in terms of what's best for a country. And you may disagree with that, but I, I see it at times. You're, you're hearing this from a guy who grew up in a family where all the family members had their own unique businesses. So uh, this isn't about uh, being in favor of one or the other. But it, from a nation, national uh, interest. Long term, we have two things that don't seem to be considered. One is the long term uh, for heating houses. And I had a friend who had electric heating. And let me tell you, he couldn't wait to transfer over the gas. The second uh, part of this picture is this reluctance uh, to uh, have requirements on housing and buildings. I know we have leads capabilities, but still uh, we missed a whole few decades where we could have had uh, regulations requiring much stiffer requirements on uh, the uses of energy uh, within buildings. Uh, and markets don't necessarily make that happen, whereas regulations uh, do make things happen like that. So uh, could you uh, discuss your own thoughts in terms of this a long-term uh, issue uh, for future generations? Uh, and part of this picture is that when I saw presentations about four or five years ago on uh, natural gas within the U.S., what is the, what is the capacity over uh, many, many years? Um, that is based on use of natural gas, uh, uh, based on previous uses of natural gas. Whereas today, we've added on many more requirements, buses running on natural gas, exports, et cetera, et cetera. So in terms of national, national uh, uh, needs to, uh, to have an affordable way of heating buildings uh, in the long run, uh, how do you see this issue? 
I mean, in short term, we can certainly talk about markets, but long term, future generations is what I'm talking about. Yeah, I, 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 uh, I, I think um, uh, I, I've worked in two Democratic administrations. I, I believe it's necessary and important to have regulation to correct market failures in a lot of different ways, uh, including ex externalities from consuming the fuel and producing it uh, the right way. The question you're asking more is one of sort of central planning, I think, which is how do we think about like anticipating future energy needs <laughs> and thinking about how much we're going to produce that domestically. We've obviously seen a sea change in the last 10 years where we went from being very import dependent to now not worrying about that as much. Could that change in the future and are we short-sighted? This is one of the arguments many people made. Are we short-sighted in sending lots of energy overseas and not meeting domestic needs moving well, forward? I, I hate to use the word central planning <laughs> because I don't believe in central planning, but I do believe in guidelines uh, yeah. in terms of having that long-term. So uh, I think like Mark, 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 I mean, there's a benefit to markets. There's also uh, an uncertainty, and, 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 and they don't work perfectly. Um, I think I trust them better than I trust government to be able today to anticipate what the future energy mix will look like, what the cost of different fuels will be, and what our demand should be, and what the optimal mix of meeting U.S. energy demand will be. And you don't need to look further than the Shell Revolution to think if we had a plan 15 years ago for what the best way would be to meet U.S. energy demand, we would have gotten it pretty wrong because whatever our estimates today are about the amount of not just gas, but all fuels that we have are and what those costs are be, are likely to be wrong for reasons we can't anticipate today. So is, you know, is it possible that we will discover 30 years from now that this whole shale thing was a bubble and there's not as much of it as we thought and prices are through the roof now and, we're in, and we've gone back to 2005 where we're all worried about peak supply and we're like, that's possible. Don't, not, not my, I wouldn't bet on that as the most likely outcome, uh, but, uh, but, but, in that, but, but then the response to that will be what we saw in 2005, which is prices go up and markets work and people figure out innovative ways to meet energy demand on the production and on the demand side that we hadn't thought about before. So I think, uh, I think that makes more sense, and I, at least on the LNG export debate, as I said a minute ago, uh, there were a lot of people who said, why are you sending your energy overseas? That's so short-sighted. And I think part of the view was it just significantly undermines U.S. credibility as a significant importer of energy and as someone who actively participates in the global energy market, which I think has big net benefits, uh, to say when it comes to our supply of cheap gas, we're going to isolate ourselves and we're going to cut ourselves off and protect ourselves. It just other people would retaliate and would respond with their own uh, policies that would hurt us. So I don't think that would be a sustainable policy. And that piece of the picture of requirements, of possible requirements on buildings. Because that would explain. Well, I think energy efficiency standards can make a lot of sense, especially if you don't price externalities the right way, and then let them figure out you know, what, what's the best way to meet that. Menda, you had a question? Yes. From the uh, view of the gas pipeline hub of the world. And precisely. <laughs> uh, obviously, I, I'll link it to Russia. Now, you showed us that the three geographic big markets, Asia, Europe, and the US, they have been converging, which is good news. How about, have you done any work on convergence of pipeline pricing and LNG pricing? Has this started taming pipeline pricing, particularly in Russia? Uh, is there enough redundancy in the system that many of the Russian clients feel they can switch? Or with the floating units, if not now, at least within the next five, ten years, do you foresee such disciplining and convergence yeah. of pipeline and LNG pricing? 
And just a very short additional question. How does this, the LNG, play out the, with the Chinese-Russian 30-year, $400 billion uh, deal that was the big news in 2014? Was all this priced in in that deal? Or is this something that will change it and the Chinese will try to get a better deal from the Russians? Yeah. No, it's a really good question. We have a study, I think, in draft now being reviewed on kind of how Gazprom will respond to this in the European market. Uh, I think it's clear that they... Uh, are competing on market share. We've seen their pipeline prices come down. Uh, and they've been forced, I think, to settle the antitrust competition in suit with the European Union. They, If you look at Gazprom's operations now uh, and how their pricing works and how their contracts works, they uh, are much more market-based. There's more destination flexibility in them. They're allowing third-party access uh, on, on some of the pipelines. These are the arguments they make in their defense when we fight about Nord Stream 2. But I think that's not entirely, but in part, a response to what they see as a lot more competition in the European market, not only from the US, from other sources uh, as well. So we are seeing changes in their how they participate as a market actor in response to more competition, which is what we wanted. I mean, that was part of the theory of the case for the benefits that could come from this supply. Uh, China sees. Uh, China sees more leverage that it has now in negotiating for pipeline supply from Russia. Russia knows that it needs an outlet for gas from that. The gas supply, as you know, from Russia into China is not, that's not the same gas that, from the east that can make it to Europe. So they know, and that's why they're investing in LNG, they know they need more outlets for that. Uh, I think the I mean, Power Siberia project will, is, is, is delayed, but moving forward. Uh, but we'll, we'll, we will see more pipeline uh, sales between Russia and China on terms more favorable to China. Um, Jim, you had your hand up. So actually, this my question to follow up right on that, which is that if, if one sees then, especially with this large increase in domestic capacity and with the changes in the pricing structures of the contracts, and especially with the large uh, number of, um, uh, of amount of exports that don't that are not subject to long-term contracts. Those are all forces that would really tend to drive towards a, a, eventually a world price for natural gas, a world price with wedges because of transportation, liquefaction, regasification. But those wedges are fairly fixed. So then that sort of sounds to me like it, it really it's. It's just like a world price for oil, and that suddenly we've opened up the United States to the same exposures in gas that we have in oil in terms of geopolitical risks. And, and actually, a lot of the same economics are, are there in terms of you know, short-run inelastic demand, uh, <coughs> difficulty to ramp up, uh, maybe even more problems in terms of reserves than we would have with oil. So it, it sort of seems like we're adding all of our concerns geopolitical concerns about world oil markets that have dominated the U.S. discussion for 40 years, and now we're just doing the same thing. We're having the same thing happen, not doing the same thing, but having the same thing emerge for natural gas. So I wonder what your views are on that. Yeah, I think, well, so it is... It is and with the same actors, you know, the same, some of the same nasty and difficult actors out there in, terms of in the production space. It is, uh, it is moving in the direction of being more competitive and a more, you know, markets are more connected. I think it, it, it will continue to be different for a couple of reasons. One is just the cost of transport is so much higher, right? So think of 
you can pretty much ignore the cost of oil transport where the cost of LNG transport is going to continue to have regional price spreads. And then, and then it's just pretty, it's very, we don't, there's very little, if any, limitation on physical import and export capacity when it comes to oil. So if you want to put more volumes on the water, you put more volumes on the water. We're not going to have that in gas. And so the question, I mean, one of the really interesting things I think about, if you want to think about what price impacts in the U.S. are being connect, more connected to a global market could have, one of the questions you want to ask yourself is whether the amount of gas, of LNG export capacity we're building is, is, is regularly used or how much of it is, is, uh, is unused capacity that could respond to spot market changes. You also see the way, I mean, you see the, the, the contract structure for the LNG export deals is important too. Uh, because, I mean, we see that now where people are selling their gas for seven, eight dollars into the Asian market. It's not affecting Henry Hub, it's not being set on the marginal price. So, Henry Hub hasn't gone to seven or eight because Chenier can sell a cargo for that volume because of the way their contract structure works. So, a combination of how much gas capacity might remain unused and able to respond to price signals and how the contracts work is, I think, going to determine to what extent global prices come into the, Europe, the U.S. market. Do you have a comment on that? Yeah, just a related question on the demand side. Is that, you know, when you were talking about the different countries that are, that are seeing import growth, in most countries, there's, a, I think, a spread of what fuels um, gas is competing with or substitute for on the margins of those countries. So in Saudi Arabia, it's oil in the summer. In, uh, in China, it's coal. In Japan, it's maybe the nuclear fleet. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that might change the demand elasticities on, on different importing countries? and which ones are most likely to set the marginal price if we do indeed end up with a kind of global price for, for LNG, at least if not you know, regional differences between them? Do we need to wrap up? The, the, uh, the <laughs> you can answer the question. Okay. Uh, no, I saw you stand up. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so the question is where the highest demand elasticities are in the gas yeah, consumers? Yeah, who, who's the swing buyer, I guess, and, and what is the fuel that is being substituted? Right, right. Well, I mean, it's, I think the regions that have uh, biggest substitution flexibility. So I think the Asian markets are the ones that are building up more excess gas capacity. I mean, again, it's, you need LNG import capacity, but also export capacity. So who has slack in their import capacity to pull more volumes in, and who's overbuilt to some extent? But today, who, who's overbuilt? So when uh, you need to pull more supply in, in on either because prices are low or, or because there's a demand shock, um, and most of that most of that today is in Asia. There's some in Europe, except the import terminals aren't connected to the grid, so you can't really get supply from southwest Spain into the European market, so it's not helpful to them. I guess just a quick one. So in most of those countries, it's so, not So why don't you follow up afterwards? Okay, we do need to wrap, because people have to go to classes. So before, before we do close, let me announce that we'll meet again next week in the seminar. Uh, we'll have Joe Goffman, who has just joined us over at the law school as the executive director of the Harvard Environmental Law Program. We'll be speaking about some of their work evaluating uh, the changes in environmental regulations in the Trump administration. And finally, I'd like you to join me in thanking Jason and Bordoff. Thank you.